Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Signs. This series looks at the seven signs found in the Gospel of John, symbolic events that call us to embrace Jesus as the Lord who has come to redeem his people. We're going to be looking today at John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 43 to 54. Um, this is going to be the third of Jesus' signs. We'll see in the text. It's the second of the signs that he does when he leaves Judah and comes into Galilee. But it's the third of his signs, actually. And um, this is one of the, the more unusual and also more challenging signs. So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. As always, you can follow along on the screen. You can follow along uh, in the booklet or in your Bible. Hear now the word of the Sovereign Lord. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they told him yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judah to Galilee. Years ago, uh, I heard testimony of a man, and I actually re-watched it uh, this week. It was a man named Dave Reaver. He was a riverboat gunner in Vietnam. So they were in what was known as the Brownwater Navy. They went up into uh, rivers. Uh, up inside Vietnam, and one of the days they were up there and they came under attack, and as they did, he took out a phosphorus grenade, which was, he was getting ready to throw, and it actually got shot by a bullet and it exploded all over him. And I won't go into the difficult details, but phosphorus grenades will burn even underwater. Uh, there's basically nothing you can do until they decide to burn out. And so at the end of this uh, ordeal, he was burned over much of his body. He had excruciating burns. He was laying in Japan in a recovery hospital, almost entirely bandaged up. He only had like one eye. One of his eyes was messed up. He had one eye that he was looking out with. And quite honestly, he was wanting to die. At one point, he pulled the tubes out because he did not want to live. And one of the reasons he didn't want to live is he just couldn't imagine how life was going to go on. He was a young married man. He did not think his wife would accept him. And on a particular day, he was waiting for his wife to come in. And they were bringing the wives in one by one. And another man's wife walked in and walked over to the man who was bandaged up just like he was, who had been burned in a very similar manner. And she pulled her ring off, dropped it on the bed, and said, I could never be married to you. I couldn't even walk down the street with you. And turned and left. And so you can imagine what he was doing. He was frantic. And his wife, Brenda, walked in and kissed him and said, I love you. Welcome home. And he remained married to her. He actually has a ministry. He does a lot of work with other wounded soldiers uh, to this very day. And I bring this story up because two wives in the same situation with their husbands had two completely opposite reactions. And the reason they did is they had two different reasons for being with those men. One 
was with her husband for what she thought she was going to get. The other, Brenda, was with Dave because she loved him. And though he had been completely transformed in a moment, it didn't change anything in their relationship. So today we want to ask this question because this is what the text is bringing out. Why do people follow Jesus? Why do I follow Jesus? What is it that I am looking for? Who is he? What is real faith? What does it really mean to welcome Jesus? This is the challenge that comes to us in this, the third sign. Now let's go over the actual kind of story and then we'll dive into what John is wanting us to learn. Now, John tells us at the beginning that Jesus, in verses 43 to 45, is returning back to Galilee. But if we back up a little bit, we can remember that Jesus had actually stopped in Samaria. He had left Judea because a lot of people were starting to respond to him, and so he left. And he went to Samaria. And while he was in Samaria, there's no other way to put it other than like a revival or an awakening broke out. And a lot of people in Samaria started coming to Jesus and following after him. And we read, in fact, in John chapter 4, verse 42, that uh, the, the group who says to the woman at the well, they said, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So the interesting thing is Jesus did not do a sign. One of the seven signs did not happen in Samaria. They, they weren't really given a lot of external reason to believe, but notice what they say is, we've heard him. We've listened to this man teach, and we know who he is now, and we believe in him. And so this is an amazing thing, because Samaria has not been a place that's been faithful to God. They're only halfway in the covenant, so to speak. This is extending out beyond Israel. And even in Samaria, they believe and they really welcome Jesus. And John's letting us know this is going to be a contrast with his home country in Galilee. Notice he tells us in verse 44 as an aside, now Jesus had himself pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So keep this in mind. Because John's saying, well, he's been in Samaria. Awakening has broken out. Now he's going to go back home to Galilee. You would think, well, that would make it even better. But John says, no, Jesus had told us a prophet has no honor in his own country. And this is actually very similar. Remember, all of these signs go back to the prologue. And in the prologue of John's gospel, we read this regarding Jesus in verses 10 and 11. John 1. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So John's already told us in the prologue, there's going to be this problem that Jesus is going to come, and the very ones you think would respond, don't respond. And we'll see later on, thankfully, there are those who do respond. So the interesting thing, however, then, that John puts in the text, and John likes to use a bit of irony. So Jesus has said, hey, I was received in and Samaria, and they really responded. But I'm warning you, when I go to Galilee, when I go to my own country, they don't do it. And then John turns around in the very next verse, in verse 45, and says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, what, it, what does that mean? What, what's going on here? And he tells us further in verse 45, they're doing this because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival because they were there. So they had seen when Jesus had cleaned out the temple and they liked it. They, they liked what they saw Jesus doing. And so when he comes back, they receive him. They welcome him. The question is going to be, do they really welcome him? And we're going to find out from Jesus' response. So while he's there... Jesus goes back to Cana, and remember, Cana is where he had done the first sign, where he turned water to wine. And so John twice links it here, where in this verse and in the very last verse, he says this is the second time Jesus came out of Judea and did a miracle up in Cana of Galilee. It's twice this has actually happened. And so Jesus comes there, and while he's there, a royal official comes. We don't know exactly who he is. He probably works for Herod because he, he works for uh, a king. 
And so he comes and he's heard about Jesus. He may have been down at Jerusalem and seen all this stuff. And he comes to Jesus. And his reason for coming, we are told, is uh, his son was laying sick at Capernaum. He's over in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a place where Jesus does many miracles and is going to show up again and again in the Gospels. And this man is from there, and he's traveled the 15 to 20 miles down to Cana to visit and see. And he comes down to see Jesus and he's because he wants Jesus to come heal his son. Now, right off the bat, when we're told that this man's a royal official, we ought to see that there's a note here that this guy's showing some humility. He hangs around kings. He hangs around people of importance and power. And despite what you and I know about Jesus, what everybody else knows about him is he's a wandering itinerant rabbi. That's what he is. He doesn't have access to people of power. He's not known by them. So this man is showing some humility and coming to Jesus and asking for healing. So what one might expect is Jesus would say, yes, let's go back to your house and I will take care of that. But oddly, that's not what Jesus says. What we discover in the very next verse, verse 48, is, now picture, this man shown humility, he comes, he says, my son's sick, come heal him. And Jesus' response is, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. This is not a positive statement. Jesus is, and he's making a comment here. Uh, I like the way the, the NIV here is translated, you people, because you, in Greek, is y'all. It's plural. He may be saying it to the man, but he's saying, you're just like the rest of the people up here in Galilee. You will not. And it is the strongest way to say will not. It is absolutely, positively will not believe unless I keep doing signs and wonders for you. That's the only way you all are going to respond. Now, as I'm describing that, you should probably be a little bit shocked. I mean, if I were there, I'd be like, geez, Jesus, you know, <laughs> lighten up a little bit. This guy's shown some humility. He's come here. His kid's sick. I mean, can't you do something for him? Why this harsh response? We'll come back to why that is. But notice what the royal official does. He doesn't get angry. What we might expect is, you remember there's a story in the Old Testament where the, the great general comes to Israel for healing, and he's told to go wash in the Jordan, and what's his response? Oh, come on. I got better rivers than this back home. I came all the way to, I thought the prophet was going to come out and do something, and here he is just telling me to get in this nasty river I could have gotten in back home, and he gets on his horse to leave, Okay. We might expect the royal official to do that. I came all the way here. I came 15 to 20 miles to find some wandering rabbi, and this is the way he talks to me? I don't think so, but he doesn't. What the rabbi says is, sir, it's interesting because the Greek word sir, kurios, means sir or lord, one or the other, but it's certainly a term of respect. And he doesn't. He stands there hat in hand, so to speak, and he says, Jesus, my son is sick. Would you please heal my son? And he stands there with humility doing this. And then amazingly, he's asking Jesus to come back with him to heal him. And Jesus again shocks because he doesn't do that. He just says, go. Your son lives. Now the amazing thing is, and this is kind of powerful, the NIV here translate your son will live, like it's a future tense. It's not. It's present tense. Your son lives. I spoke. It's done. I'm not making a prediction. I'm not making a prophecy. I'm not saying he'll be better by this time tomorrow. I have spoken. It is done now. He lives. And I'm not just making a lot out of this. Every time in this text where it references the son lives, it says it in the present tense exactly like that. It's the same exact word. Every time is, it's your son lives. The son lives. It was this time yesterday, your son lives. Because Jesus' word is powerful. Notice here, Jesus is saying, I don't need to go 15 or 20 miles. I don't have to be there. I don't have to do some kind of incantation. When I speak the word, it is 
done. My word, if we go back to the prologue, created everything. My word sustains everything. And all I need to do is speak a word of healing and your son lives. And I have done it. You can go back home. It's a, a powerful, amazing thing. And then amazingly enough, again, see, if I'm the royal official, uh, yeah, but could you go with me? Remember, this is not the day where I can pull out the phone and say, hey, what's going on back there? I've traveled 15 miles. I've come all the way. I get this strange response. Then I get go. It's done. Okay, but I don't have anything else to go on. Could you like make a rock float or do something else to show me that you can actually do this? But what does the official do? Nothing. He just says, got it. Turns and he leaves and he goes back home. His faith hangs on nothing but the bare word of Jesus. Jesus said it's done. He believes it's done. He steps up and he goes back home. He has not seen a sign or a wonder. All he knows is Jesus said, it's done, go back home. And the official leaves and goes. Now what we read then is, as he travels back home, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And again, it actually says, they met him with the news that his boy lives. Same exact word. And so the official looks and says, when did this happen? And they said, well, it was actually yesterday. It was like at 1 o'clock yesterday, all of a sudden the fever left him and he lives. And the official says, oh my word, that was exactly when Jesus told me, go, your boy lives. And so the official says, this is not a coincidence. He had the power to speak a word and to speak a word of healing. He is this healing shows Jesus is the sovereign king whose powerful word creates, whose powerful word sustains, heals, and gives life. And that's what this official knows. And quite honestly, when I first looked at signs, I would have said, well, that's the sign. Jesus can heal. But see, that's not the sign John wants us to get because he wants us to dig a little deeper. And so, we want to talk, that's what he did, but what's the reality that this is showing? Because remember, every one of the signs, a sign always points to something else. He did the sign of healing here, but what's it pointing to? And what it points to is the reality that Jesus is the sovereign king. So notice, we're going to go back now. Why did Jesus make this strange, why do we have this whole strange thing that John says, well, Jesus now, he's been interrupted for a few days in Samaria. He'd been going back home, but he stopped for a few days. And now he says, well, now he's picking up and he's going to go back home. And so in verse 44, John actually says, remember now, Jesus himself had told us that in his own country, a prophet has no honor. He's, he's uh, making this prediction that the Galileans will not really receive him. And it's really important to understand, this saying is one of the few that is in every single gospel. All four gospels record, Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And in the other three gospels, he says it specifically about Galilee. It's very, very clear. Hey, I'm being honored other places, but I come home to where I'm from, and you all don't honor me. You give me an honor, but you know what? That's because a prophet never has honor in his own country. And so John's inserted this here, telling us Jesus had said it before. Well, why is he doing it? He's doing it because when he notes, John likes to write with irony, and when he notes that the Galileans welcomed him, if we did it in modern parlance, he would probably have put quotes around it. They welcomed him. But note what he tells us, why they had welcomed him is because they had been, been down in Jerusalem. They had seen everything he had done there at the Passover feast. Now, see, they probably liked it. It was a good comeuppance. All those people down in Jerusalem with their, with their famous little temple, and they like to run around and do all this. And, yeah, one of our guys went down there and showed them up. He did what needed to be done for them. And so the Galileans are like, 
Yeah, you're our guy. Jesus isn't interested in that. He's not interested in that at all. See, the Samaritans had received Jesus uh, as Savior of all based on his word. Not based on him doing that. They didn't see anything about him being down there in Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, the Samaritans might have liked him being in there and driving out everything from the temple. But there's no record in Samaria that they said, yeah, we heard you drove those people out of the temple. We're your guy, Jesus. We, we like you, Jesus. You're our guy. No, they heard what he said, and they believed that he was the Savior of the world. Well, he now goes home to Galilee, and the Galileans are receiving him because they like what he did. Not for who he is, but they like what he did. And so this is why in verse 48, Jesus gives this strange rebuke. I mean, come on, this guy's just asking, would you heal my child? If you had a child dying, and Jesus was 10 miles up the road or 15 miles up the road, and you walked up there, how many of you would go to him and say, would you please heal my child? I mean, I would. I mean, I have been there when a couple of times with grandchildren, I never actually had it with a child, but I've been there with grandchildren when I was cradling them in my arms and crying out for Jesus to bring healing. And I've been there when the medicine didn't seem to be doing anything, and I thought my grandchild might not make it. And let me tell you, there was serious praying going on. And then if Jesus had come and sent an angel and said, you just will not believe without a sign and a miracle. Lord, can we get back to the issue at hand? Sick child, are, are, you, are you missing this? See, but Jesus is doing this because he's driving at something about the Galileans. And it's not just here. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus rebukes a generation that seeks signs and wonders from him. This may sound strange to us because Jesus, this whole gospel is built around signs and wonders. And actually, I'll talk a little bit about that in an after hours this week. If you watch the video that will come out on Tuesday, I'll talk a little bit more about the full New Testament picture. But I want you to just see right now, Jesus actually rebukes this consistently. For example, in Matthew 16, verse 4, he's been asked by the Pharisees, hey, you're doing all this stuff, but we need you to give us a sign, as if all the miraculous stuff he was doing was not already a sign enough. And here's Jesus' response. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, y'all help me with this, okay? For all you Bible scholars, is it good when Jesus says you're a wicked and adulterous generation? Who thinks that's a good thing? Okay? See, bad thing. When Jesus looks at you and says wicked, adulterous, and then he tells him, here's the only sign you're going to get, the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of the earth, and then I'm going to come out. That's the only sign you're going to get. And, of course, the amazing thing is, do they accept that sign? They reject that sign. It's not what they wanted. And it's not just that he said it there. In Matthew 12, 38 and 39, on a different occasion, Jesus said almost the exact same thing. In Luke chapter 11, verse 16, another different occasions, same thing. Multiple times Jesus said it, and here in John's gospel, he's basically saying the same thing. What's wrong with you Galileans? You're with me as long as I'm doing the signs that you want. When you like what you see, you are following, but you're not doing it. If you remember at the end of the second sign, when Jesus drives the people out of the temple, you remember we're told in uh, John 2, 23 that many of the people in Jerusalem saw that and they believed in him. They put their faith in him. But then there's that strange phrase where John says, but Jesus didn't put his faith back in them because he knew what was inside of them. He knew that there was a problem here. They were responding because they liked what he was doing, not because of who he was not because of what he was giving testimony regarding who he was and his own testimony. So their only faith was in him because of the signs he did. And this is actually very consistent in John's gospel because remember in John 2, 23, Jesus does not entrust him because he knows what's in a man. And the very next verse is Nicodemus comes and Nicodemus says, oh, we know you're from God. Nobody could do the signs you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus' response is, oh yeah, that's what you know? Okay. Well, nobody can even see the kingdom, Nicodemus, unless they've been born again. What? 
What are you talking about? I got to get. And you go through the whole conversation, and Nicodemus leaves, and he's not a disciple. He doesn't, he doesn't like what Jesus said. He likes some of the things he had seen, but he's very confused by what Jesus says. John chapter 6, we're going to see the same thing in another sign. Jesus makes the bread, and they all start following him around. And then when Jesus says, okay, go ahead and sit down and let me talk to you a little bit about who I am. And then they don't like it. They don't follow. John chapter 8, the disciples are like, we're behind you, Jesus. We like this stuff you're doing. And then Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, I will set you free. And by the end of that conversation, they say, you are a demon-possessed maniac. Same people. Okay? Because they like what he's doing as long as they like what he's doing. But then when it comes down to him saying, here's who I am, how do you respond to that? They don't like it. So what are the problems with this kind of welcome and this kind of faith? Well, the problems with it is this type of faith treats Jesus not as the sovereign king, but as the divine attendant who exists to meet my needs and my desires. I like Jesus because he can bring all that power to do what I want. Bob Dylan, the uh, great poet and songwriter, uh, back around 1978 or 79, had actually gotten really involved with the evangelical church, and he put out an album called Slow Train Coming that was an absolutely fabulous album. And he had a song called When You're Gonna Wake Up, based on Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation. And he had a line in it that I've just never forgotten. It struck me. It said, do you ever wonder just what God requires? You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. But when are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? It's a sad thing to me, but Dylan's response to coming into evangelical churches is, you all seem to think God's here to serve you and do what you want. Isn't that backwards? Isn't he the king? See, this type of faith will follow Jesus if he does what I want. And then when he says, I'm the king and my answer is no, I pick up my toys and I go home. I no longer want to follow because if you're not going to use your power and authority to do what I want, to be blunt, what's the use in you? Why am I going to have you around if you're not going to do what I want? See, this type of faith actually sits in judgment of Jesus and his word. Rather than humbly submitting to Jesus and his word, it tries to determine if it's acceptable or not. Well, Jesus, you tell me what you're saying, and then I will be the arbiter of whether I think that's true, whether I like that, whether I want that. Now, Fortunately, we don't have that problem in our culture today. We believe whatever Jesus says in his word, right? See, this is exactly who we are. We want to judge the word of God. And Jesus says, you got it backwards. You don't judge the word of God. The word of God judges you. You don't determine truth. Truth has been determined and spoken in the word of God, and you correct your perception of truth to line up with what my word says. We think, well, I will accept Jesus and his word as long as it lines up with how I feel, how I perceive. Maybe what I've heard on the news is true. Jesus says, no, this is truth. I am truth. And if you think, you feel, you experience something different, your thought, your feeling, your experience is wrong. My word is true. But see, this kind of faith doesn't want to accept that. It says, well, as long as you're doing it the way I like, as long as it's lining up with what I think, then I am okay with it. And just so you know, I'm not just making this up. In Capernaum, the very place this royal official is from, Jesus goes there, and they're all excited about it. This is in John 6, when he multiplies the fish and the loaves, and they're all excited. But notice how that story ends. In John chapter 6, at verse 59, it says, he said this. He's telling him, you got to eat my flesh, you got to drink my blood, 
You've you got to realize who I am. I am life. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And on hearing it, many of his disciples, notice the sense of irony. These are people who claim to follow. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Notice what offended them, what he was saying. They liked what he had done, but when it came time and he said, okay, let me explain to you what this means. The reason I did the fish and loaves and, and all this is not just so that I can keep your belly full. It's to point to who I am. So let's get down to business now. Here's who I am. You have no life except for me. The only way for you to live is to eat and drink me. I am life. And then all of a sudden, I'm not too sure I'm with that, Jesus. I've been kind of weighing that out, and I think you might be a little bit overboard here. See, and notice, Jesus does not pull back. Somebody says, well, that's what it is. That is truth. So this type of faith, see, it has a problem because here's what will happen. If I like something Jesus does, and I say, oh, I want to follow you, and then suddenly he doesn't do what I'm liking, he says things I don't like, and I'm like, ugh. Any ideas what Satan might do at that moment? Oh, he'll come in and do what you want. He'll be glad to. And if my faith is in following that which gives me what I want, you are primed for deception. Not just my words again. Jesus speaks this in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders. Notice it's the exact same phrase. He said, this is what you Galileans are looking for. You're, you're only following me because you, you, you see these signs and wonders. And Jesus says, you'll see these signs and wonders, and they will deceive, if possible, even the elect. If what you're interested in is somebody who's going to make you Lord and do what you want, the enemy will be all too glad to give that to you. And Jesus says, the end result is you're deceived. Because this type of faith follows only its wandering desires. Now notice, here's the amazing thing. In this text, we're given the juxtaposition, the opposite of it, in the royal official. This man of power comes, and he is a picture of humility. Again, notice, he's humble even in the fact that he comes to Jesus. And then, he's not only humble in coming and laying the request to Jesus. When Jesus gives the strong rebuke, is there any hint that his back stiffened up and he got angry? See, he's just like, you remember in the first sign, remember that both of them were in Cana. Remember where Mary comes and says, they've got no more wine. And Jesus replies with that very stern answer, woman, what is there between me and you? And you remember Mary's response, yeah, I don't know what that means, but you all do whatever he says. Because <laughs> I know he's the solution. I may not understand what that meant, but I know he's the solution. You remember there's the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman that comes and she says, Lord, I've got a sick child I need you to heal. And Jesus very compassionately says, it's not good to give the children's bread to dogs. Now be honest. What might your response be? Uh, not a dog. Not a dog, Lord. I'm a person. I think you could treat me with a little more respect. But what does she say? Oh, Lord, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall off of the table. I'm just asking you for a scrap. And what does Jesus say? Your faith is great. Your, your child is healed. See, this is a humble faith. And the royal official here does the same thing. He's not offended. He accepts it and just says, Lord, I need you to heal my son. Jesus is looking for people who are humble enough to realize their utter helplessness and need for him. There's no bargain here. I don't come and say, Jesus, you give me this, but I am giving you this back. I mean, he's giving me righteousness. I'm giving him sin. He's giving me that which is healthy and good. I'm giving him that which is evil and sick. He's giving me power. I'm giving him utter weakness. I mean, I guess there's a deal in that sense. 
but he's not getting anything out of this. And Jesus says, when you understand that precisely, that's the truth. That's what you need to grasp. That's what humility looks like. He's looking for those who will humbly receive his word, even when it seems offensive and hard to understand. And I can't state this enough. If you don't think the word of God will offend you, you are not reading your Bible. Because I've been reading it since 1978, and there are times where I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this. This is hard. But is my faith going to cling to him and say, I'm not even sure how to take this, Lord, but I know you have the words of life. I don't know exactly what this is, but Lord, I know I just need to do what you're telling me to do. Lord, everything in me feels a different way. Everything in me tells me this is my reality, but you're telling me otherwise. And I believe what you say rather than what I feel. Do I have that kind of humility, or do I think I can weigh it out and decide what truth is for myself? And notice also the royal official is a picture of faith. Twice we're given this thing where, you know, Jesus says, go, and the man took Jesus at his word and departed, and he goes off. He has nothing to go on but the bare word of Jesus, but he says, I don't need anything else. It's not like anything else can add to the word of the sovereign king. The king doesn't have to give me another word. He has spoken that is enough. Unlike those who refused to believe when Jesus no longer provided what they wanted and they departed, because we read over and over in the gospel, when they hear what Jesus says and they don't like it, they depart and they no longer follow. This man departs because he now is a follower. And so when he gets home, his whole family comes to faith, which is an astounding thing. Paradoxically, because he's humble enough to simply embrace Jesus' word in faith, he receives a miracle and the entire family comes to believe. If he had showed arrogance and stayed there and argued, or if he didn't believe, everything falls apart. But the man trusts Jesus. Jesus is seeking those who will embrace his bare word with faith, staking everything on him. And let me just say as a sideline before we go to applying the word, if you live like that, the world will not applaud you. They will say you are out of your mind. You can't believe some book that was written thousands of years ago. You can't stake it all on that. I've had people speak to me like I had the IQ of a toad frog. Because you can't seriously, uh, yeah, I actually do, seriously. I really do believe you. You can't, you can't just blindly follow somebody. Yeah, when it's written by God, yes, I can. Yes, because I think God's smarter than you are. That's what I'm saying. It's not that I think I'm smarter than you are, I, but I'm sure God's smarter than you are. And so when you and God disagree, I'm going with God. That's what Jesus is looking for. Make no mistake about it. We, they thought it was crazy when Jesus was walking around. They thought it was crazy in the early church. And they think it's crazy today. They are wrong. Very simple. Okay? So I just did my bit of political incorrectness. How do we apply this? What does it mean to us? Well, John's wanting us to reply, respond to the signs. See, our pragmatic culture, this is really important for us. How do I respond to him? Our culture is pragmatic. America's contribution to philosophy is pragmatism, which says, stop worrying about thinking through all this. Just do whatever works. If it's working for you, that's good enough. Might I point out that's exactly what Jesus is railing against here is it's not about just what works for me. Because again, Satan will be all too glad to get things to work for you and lead you down the path. See, this is why the prosperity gospel has taken such deep root in our culture. Because all of us 
You like this and so do I. You like the idea that following Jesus is going to make everything better for you. And I know you do because so do I. That's a huge temptation. I want to hear, you mean, I can have Jesus and I can get my best life now? Where do I sign up? But it's not true. It's profoundly not true. We all crave health, wealth, success, acceptance. Every one of us want those things. But see, here's what this sign points to. Do I want Jesus? Or do I want what he provides? To go back to my introduction, am I the wife walking in and looking at the man I had made covenant with and saying, I want you? Or do I pull the ring off and plop it on and say, you no longer provide what I want? Which way am I? Which way is my faith? Does my welcome of Jesus depend on him giving me those things? And what if he suddenly said, yes, I have provided that the last nine times you asked, today the answer is no. I'm doing something different for a different reason. Does my response to him then change? Or is my response, well, what I want is you. This has all been nice, but what I want is you. All of these are ways of asking how I'm responding to him. How do I respond if believing Jesus' word costs rather than pays? Can I tell you, your brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria right now, uh, our son Johnny from our church is over there in northern Nigeria right now. Can I tell you they're not getting their best life right now by embracing Jesus? They're getting Fulani herdsmen riding into their town, burning down the village, hacking people to death with machetes. That's what they're getting out of embracing the word of Jesus. And you know what they say? It's worth it. Because his word is the word of life. I was dead, now I'm alive. My children were dead, and now my son lives. And I may suffer, and I may pay now, but I have eternal glory ahead of me. How do I respond if believing and embracing the word of God costs rather than pays? I'm not a prophet, but do you realize that uh, that might become true right here in America? It might become true that it costs. Right now it costs in terms of ridicule. Right now it costs in terms perhaps of social capital. It might even cost more. But am I willing to say it doesn't really matter? I have what I, I have found him. I have been brought to life by his word and I embrace it. And if it costs, so be it. I have life. Can I say with Job, though he slays me, yet will I trust him? That is faith. Welcoming him because he's my divine bellhop, getting me what I want, that's not faith. That's me indulging my desires. So as we're coming to the table today, what I want us to do is let the Holy Spirit search our hearts and shape us and reshape our desires. We're going to be coming to the table, and we are invited to the table of the sovereign king. He lays this out for us. And at this table, one of the things we do is we come and we confess as you're sitting here in the Spirit searching your heart, and he's searching my heart, there may be something that comes up and I say, I think I want this more than Jesus right now. Don't too quickly run by and think that that wouldn't happen. That, that, that does happen to all of us. And this is the place where we come 
And we say, Lord, I, I can't believe I've put this other thing in front of you. This thing's not life. It's just a gift you gave me. And we let the Spirit search us. And then we come and we feast. And we realize He is not only enough, He's more than enough. And He's the only feast that causes us to live. And so I encourage and invite you to come and do this. Now what we're going to do, let me give one or two words and then I'll explain what we're going to do here. If you're a, a guest this morning, a visitor, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church. You do have to be a believer, which means you understand these things I'm saying are true. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. You aren't bringing anything to God. He's not getting a bargain by having you as a follower. Any more than he got a bargain having me as a follower. He just got a load of problems. But he is life. And Jesus died to bear the wrath of God that you deserved. If you believe that and you believe he's been raised and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we invite you to come to this table and to eat and feast. As always, if you want gluten-free, you can raise your hand in a couple moments and we'll hand it out. But what we're going to do a little bit different today, I'll tell you now so that we'll start it right at the end. After I do the words of institution as we're handing them out, we're going to be putting up and, and playing the song, Give Me Jesus. Very simple song. But it's basically saying, all I want is Jesus. You, you can have this whole world. You can have everything this world has to give. Long as I got Jesus, that's all I want. So let's confess if the Spirit brings up anything else and says, really? I think this is going on in your heart. Let's confess it. Give it over to him and then sing this in faith. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Holy Spirit of the living God, as we come to this sacramental table, the table of the King, come and search our hearts, reveal our sin, and show us again that all we have, all we need, all we should ever truly long for is found in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them. We will take them together in a couple moments. And as they're passing them out, let's sing this worship song together. Let it be our prayer to the Lord. Lord, you are the sovereign king, the eternal creator and ruler of all. And out of your overflowing glory, goodness, and grace, you created all that is, including humanity. This world is yours and everything in it. Your beauty and glory are, are beyond compare. But today we confess that our hearts have often wandered, being more drawn to the gift than the giver. Our hearts have been receptive when you have done as we wanted but they were quickly drawn away when your sovereignty did not follow our desires. Forgive us, we pray. Look upon Christ, who was broken for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquity, and took away our sins. Lord, as we take this bread, renew a steadfast spirit within us, so that we embrace you as the sovereign king, desiring you above all things and obediently following your will. Take and eat the bread of life. Lord, you are the sovereign king, the eternal ruler and sustainer of all. The earth is yours and everything in it. 
But when you came to this world, we did not recognize you. You came to that which was your own, but we did not receive you. Instead, you were rejected and slain by us. Your precious blood, which is worth more than all the treasures of this world, was spilled by us, and you were put to death. Yet, you did this for us and for our salvation, that all who do receive you, who believe in your name, would have the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In taking this cup, we confess we are your people and you are our God. And we proclaim that we desire you more than silver or gold, more than power or fame, more than life itself. You are our glorious King, and we are your willing and joyful servants. Take and drink the cup of life. Holy Spirit, you are the one who hovered over creation, bringing order from chaos, fashioning all things in line with the Father's will. Come, fall upon us, and do this fresh in us. Come, rest upon us, forming and fashioning us, so that our desires are ordered aright, so that we love our King with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. Give us eyes this day, this week, to see the beauty splendor and glory of Jesus so that we would be captivated by him and would desire nothing apart from him. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people say, amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to speak a word of benediction. I encourage you as always to receive it. And I encourage you as well. I know this is a challenging word, but I want to encourage you, when the Father chooses to do things that you or I might not understand, it is always for your good and mine. He is life. So I encourage you to receive his blessing and go in his peace. May you be blessed as you cling in faith to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people receive the blessing and say, Amen. Go forth in the peace of our Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.